to just cut out due to time. I want to ask that you be gracious with me. We're going to be journeying through two chapters in the book of Hebrews, and we're going to be doing it similar to the way Brad did it. We're going to be taking a broad overview look at two chapters, and then we're going to be diving deep down into a specific part of those two chapters. And to be quite honest, to use a rugby analogy, I feel like I've been given the rugby pass, which is a hospital pass. Okay, the hospital pass, if you catch the ball up here, you know you're going to get taken out, but you've got to catch it anyway, all right? Um, so I feel like I've been given that, but I'm excited to preach on it, and I'm excited to unpack this. Um, you'll know... You'll know that this series, part of the series, we journeyed together and we asked you to send us questions. Um, 90% of the questions were about chapter 6. It's that, it's that like really thorn-in-your-flesh type passage that everybody gets hung up on and it gets the attention it's due. And because of that, 90% of the questions that were asked around that passage were this question, does this mean I can lose my salvation? So what we're going to do is we're going to, that's what we're going to focus on, and that's what this whole message really essentially is going to be about. It's going to be attempting to answer that question in light of the book of Hebrews and the warning passages, um, and then hopefully we come away with, uh, with an answer, right? But um, before we focus just on that, I just want to say this quickly. The warning passages in Hebrews are set within different contexts. They're in the context of the book, and then each warning has its appropriate encouragement and exaltation of Jesus. And so we're going to try and answer that question by looking at a bunch of the different warning passages. But despite, no matter where you land with this thing, theologically, there are people in the Reformed camp or the Calvinistic camp would say you, wouldn't, you can't lose your salvation, and there are some that would say that you can. Theologically, it's like two titans fighting one another, right? And it's a, a pen issue. In, in, in theology, we speak about blood issues, pen issues, and pencil issues. Blood issues are salvific things. You know, the, the deity of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the humanity of Christ, the fact that he's the one and only way, all that sort of stuff, right? Pen issues are important issues, but they're not salvific. However, when you see these two fighting against each other or putting themselves up against each other, you've got to land in one of the other camps. You can't be in the middle, and for me, I just feel one titan is stronger than the other, right? But this is not a reason to disfellowship with one another, right? We honor and love one another because of this, but we try and interpret Scripture as much as possible uh, with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, and we love and we honor each other no matter where we land. So there are going to be three groups of people in this room. A group of people who don't know where they stand on that, and that's okay because you're trying to work that out. A group of people who go, no, you can't lose your salvation. A group of people who say, yes, of course you can. Right? And one of three things is going to happen. You're going to walk away uh, more confused, right? Or you're going to walk away absolutely established in the position you already have. Or you're going to walk away uh, established in the position you didn't come in here with this morning, right? Regardless of where you land, this is the ultimate purpose of this message, that we walk away with a deeper love and reverence and awe for our King Jesus. That we walk away uh, unified in our understanding that He is so great and in an understanding of how seriously the author of Hebrews took the denial and rejection of Jesus. We walk away uh, loving Jesus together. Right? That's the ultimate goal. So we're going to read, and then we're going we're to jump straight into it. Right. Therefore, he says in chapter 4, verse 14, Since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness 
But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet, he did not sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor upon himself, but he receives it when they are called by God just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, that was another question that was asked. In chapter 7, John is going to unpack who Melchizedek was and why it's significant that Jesus was from the order or the line of Melchizedek. That's not my job. That would have been ridiculous to try and do as well. Goes on in verse 7, chapter 5. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And was designated by God to be priest in the order of Melchizedek. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who can by constant use, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish between good and evil. And then the passage. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings of our Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. What a massive chunk of Scripture. Broad overview. What this is all about, what those two passages are all about, is the superiority of the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. That's what the author is getting at. Jesus is superior as a priest. Now, we don't necessarily relate to the idea of a priest. We pastors, deacons, elders, maybe bishops, maybe archbishops, we understand that. But high priests, we don't really understand that because that's not really part of our culture. But for the Jewish person that Jesus was writing to, remember, he's trying to convince them. He's trying to get them not to fall back to what they were once part of, Judaism. He's saying, don't reject Jesus. Don't go back. Don't go back to the priests that you had because you have a high priest who is far greater than them. And his name is Jesus. He begins to point out how a priest functions. He says, this is the role of a priest, right? This is what he's supposed to do. But for us, sometimes it can be a little bit irrelevant because we don't relate to Jesus often as our high priest the way the Jewish people would have related to their priests and the high priest that they had back in the day. And I would say this. I would say that until we actually recognize the greatness of God and the, and, and, 
and the, and the rules and the laws and the structure that he gave to his people in the Old Testament. And then our sinfulness and the necessity that God said his people had in a priest or for a priest, we can't really begin to appreciate the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. And the reality is still today, although we're not part of the Old Testament structure and covenant, we still need a high priest. God's people have never not needed a high priest. And the whole point of this is this. Jesus is that high priest. He's greater than the priests of the Levitical line that came from the line of Aaron. He says he's greater. And the reason why Jesus is greater is because the Levitical priests, they were sinful themselves. They had to offer sacrifices, but with animals' blood, goats, sheep, lamb. They would, they would, they would offer those bulls' blood. Right? And it wasn't enough because they kept having to do that every year. Sins had to be atoned for, had to be atoned for, had to be atoned for. The priest was sinful himself, which was great because it meant that he could then relate to the needs of people. Right? He was supposed to empathize with people. He was supposed to offer gifts and sacrifices on behalf of the people to God. He was supposed to intercede for them and mediate for them. But they would come and go. The high priest would change. The position of high priest and the person in the high priest position would change. And so it was this like transient thing. It was never sufficient to have a human or a sinful human being in the high priest position because it would just keep fading. Right? But then Jesus comes. And what he, the author is trying to get us to see is just how glorious Jesus is in that position. He is our high priest. He became the sacrifice. He became our high priest. He tore the temple veil. He opened up the way into the Holy of Holies. Not only is our sacrifice and our high priest, but he tore the temple veil by his own blood, not the blood of bulls, sheep, or goats. He now sits as mediator next to the Father, interceding on our behalf. He's the one who's able to sympathize and empathize with us because he was tested in every way and exposed to all the weaknesses we have, yet he was without sin. And the greatest push and punch from the author to the Hebrews is this, and his priesthood would never fail. What he did was sufficient. No one will take his place. He's superior and above and beyond all that you can dream of or imagine. Jesus is amazing. This is what he's punting. This is what he's pushing. He's getting, don't let go of Jesus. Then what he does is something really interesting. He moves into a bit of a rebuke. And the rebuke is important because it helps us to understand why he says what he does in the warning passage. So the warning passage comes because, hey, it's terrible if you turn away from this high priest because he's the only one you ever need and will ever be able to save you. He's the only one ever to save you. But the reason why you might turn away is the reason why he rebukes them. Right? That's what he says. He says, by this time you ought to be teachers, but you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. His rebuke is because they were immature. And it's not wrong to be immature in the same way that it would be wrong to shout at a baby or a two-year-old for not understanding complex you know, life issues or not being able to decide what they want to do for the rest of their life and not be able to understand that to cross a road without looking is dangerous. It would be wrong to discipline them or to shout at them for being, oh, you're so stupid, right? They're just young, and so immaturity understandably comes with a lack of knowledge sometimes, and so you teach gently. But here, the implication is that these guys are immature because of their laziness and inactivity and their mediocre response to God, and so they're immature. In fact, they've forgotten the things that they were once taught. 
And so he rebukes them and he goes, I'm concerned about you. And the reason why he's concerned is because here's what he says about the mature. Solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish between good and evil. He's saying because of your immaturity, you're unable to see that the thing you're about to do is so dangerous. It's the same as me with my son. I, I teach him to look left and right when we cross the road. Because of his immaturity, if he just walks, he's going to die. And so the author to the Hebrews is saying, you're so immature, and I'm angry about this, because Jesus is amazing. He's greater than anything you could ever dream of going back to you. Yet because of your immaturity, you're tempted to go there. And some of you have even gone back. That's what, that's what he's saying. And so then he moves into this, and he's going like, let me tell you why. Let me tell you why it's so dangerous to be immature. Because you're about to reject Jesus. And when you reject Jesus, it becomes impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again, exposing Him to public disgrace. Right? So does this mean I can lose my salvation? I would like to phrase that differently and say, does this scripture teach that a Christian can unchoose God? Can a Christian walk away from their faith? I think losing is a bad word because it's like, oh, geez, where to go, right? That's not what he's talking about. The question should really be, can you decide to unchoose God? In his sovereignty, has God given us the ability to say yes to him? And then at the same time, can we go no to him somewhere down the line? Right, that's what we're attempting to answer. To do that, right, we have to look at all the warning passages. So we're going to zoom into the question and look at all the warning passages and end off looking at the warning passage in chapter 6. Right? When you put all the warning passages together, and you can go and do this research yourself, and I want to implore you to do that. When you put all the warning passages together, there are four things that every single warning passage has. One, they have an audience. Right? They have a sin that the author is warning them not to commit. There is an encouragement or an exhortation or a plea to do something to avoid the sin. And then there are consequences. Things that will happen should you not avoid the sin. Right? What we're going to do is we're going to work from number four up. Because the two bottom ones are the ones most people agree on. It's the two at the top that people disagree on. Right? So we're going to work, work our way up there. And hopefully once we've done that... We'll have landed somewhere, right? So the consequences. Here's what the author spells out. And there seems to be one theme that runs through all the consequences, and it's quite potent. They're potent expressions. Here's what he says will happen to you if you commit this sin. They will not enter my rest. Speaking the my is God's rest. It is impossible to renew them unto repentance. No sacrifice for sins remains but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. They will have died without mercy, and they will face destruction. Those are some of the consequences. Now, if you were to collate those and put them together, I would say it is my belief that the consequences for the sin are disastrous. And whatever, whoever the perpetrators are, because of the sin, will find themselves outside of relationship with God. They will find themselves outside of the company of God. And they will have eternal, disastrous consequences. 
Because as it says in chapter 10, they are enemies of God. Those are the consequences of whatever the sin is that the author is warning them not to commit. Right? You may or may not agree. What you need to do is go home and take these references and go, is this speaking about eternal damnation? Or is this speaking about something else? I land in the space with this, whatever the sin is, you land in internal damnation. Right? Then we're going to deal with the encouragement. What does the author say you should do to avoid this sin? Here's what he says. Right? Pay attention. Hold on. Be careful. Don't fall short. Let us make every effort. In other words, try hard. Let us hold fast. Leave the elementary teachings. Move on to maturity. Don't cast away your confidence. You need to persevere. Right? So he says, in order to avoid the consequences of this sin, this is what you need to do. Hold on. Persevere. Hold fast. Don't turn away. Carry on. It reminds me of where Paul says, I have run this race with perseverance. I've run it to the end. Strive hard to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of you. Right? So there's this encouragement. <clears throat> if I can choose one term to summarize or two words to summarize the encouragement, it would be this, to persevere or to be faithful. Persevere, be faithful, is what the author is saying. <clears throat> to quote one theologian, says, The author calls us to a long obedience. This perseverance is both mental and personal. I understand it, and I know it applies to me, and I live it out. One both knows that God is faithful and that Jesus is God's Son and Savior, and one actively surrenders to God. That's what the author is calling out. It surrendered to his grace and empowerment for the entire length of one's life. Perseverance, then, is both about one's theology and one's practice. It is both belief and believing, trusting and obedience. Right? So we've established, well, at least our land there, that the consequence is eternal judgment and damnation. The encouragement is to hold on, hold on, hold on. Persevere, persevere, persevere. And so I've got to, even at this point, conclude this. That if it's true that the punishment is eternal damnation, and if it's true that the encouragement is to hold on, persevere, be faithful, one doesn't need to call a non-Christian to perseverance. One doesn't need to call a non-Christian to faithfulness. One doesn't need to encourage a non-Christian to hold on. They're already not holding on. They're already not there. Perseverance is exclusively a Christian faith thing. Right? I mean, isn't perseverance an indicator of genuine faith? I have faith and so I persevere. I have faith and so my life produces fruits. I have faith and so I work. It's the same message that James preaches. For that reason, some theologians have torn James out of their Bible because they can't reconcile the idea of God's grace and having to still work it out in our lives. Right? And we'll get to just now the fact that I don't think this means we earn our salvation or can work for it. 
But there's an overflow. It's the same encouragement that Paul gives. And he talks on and on in his letters about a relationship that lasts. A relationship that continues. To persevere means we continue to believe and live like believers. That's what it means. You can't, being a disciple of Jesus is synonymous with salvation. In the book, I've got this around my wrist. 1 John 2.6. He who claims to be in Christ must live as Christ lived. Must walk as Christ walked. It doesn't mean, perseverance doesn't mean sinlessness. I just want to make that clear. It doesn't mean we're on some steady, never falling incline towards perfect sanctification. That's not going to happen here. It doesn't mean we don't stumble, we don't mess up, we don't make mistakes, we don't have doubts, we don't have fears, we don't, you know, get it right all the time. It doesn't mean that we deny our problems and the reality of life. That doesn't mean that. That's all perseverance means. It means simply that the person continues to walk with Jesus and doesn't denounce him or renounce him in an absolute manner. That's what perseverance means. So let's recap quickly. So far we've learned that there's a sin that the author's worried about. He's learned that if, we've learned that if the, the, the audience or the recipients of this letter fall into the sin, there will be eternal suffering and judgment. And we've learned that the author's exhorting them not to turn back or not to fall into the sin by saying to them, hold on, persevere, f- trust faithfully, be obedient to God in all things for all your life. So now we get to the two that people most disagree on, right? What is the sin? What's the sin that he's calling them not to fall into? The list of words the author uses for the sin that he fears the audience are going to fall into is quite long. And regardless of whether you agree or disagree with me, we all have to read this with an open heart and a desire for truth and an open mind. We all have to do that. We all have to deal with Hebrews, right? So I'm asking you, not now, but go home. Do, do, do what, um, who were the guys who tested Paul? Um, the, the Bereans. They were like, I'm testing what you say according to Scripture. Go home, read these references, and ask yourself these questions. What is the sin these people commit? What kind of person, i.e. a Christian or a non-Christian, commits these things? And further, Can a non-Christian commit these sins? Ask yourself those questions about these references. Let's read them quickly. Here's here's what the author says the sin is. To slip away. To be disobedient. To disregard one's salvation. To harden your hearts. Turn away from the living God. Disobey. Fall away. Re-crucify Christ, making a public display of Him. Deliberate sin. Treat with contempt, the spirit of grace. Shrink back, forgotten the word of encouragement. That's what he says the sin is. That's what he's encouraging them not to do. Because should they do that, they would end up in a place of eternal damnation. What's interesting is that the author doesn't use one term for the sin. But as you read Hebrews as a whole, you can put them together. Some of them are metaphorical. But when we study the text fairly, I honestly believe that he's warning us about willful rejection of God. I honestly believe he's warning us about willful denunciation of Jesus. I honestly believe he's warning us about a rejection or disregard for God's 
moral standards. This sin is deliberate. It's deliberate and it's conscious. In other words, it does not sneak up on you and grab you in the night and take something away from you. Right? It's not something that just happens willy-nilly and you just don't know about it. This is something that's deliberate. The sin is deliberate and it's conscious. It doesn't just sneak up on you like you can just by accident lose something. And here's what I think the sin is. I think as I study Hebrews, and trust me, I've been in both camps and I've been confused many times. But as I've studied and as I've matured, I've come to a more and more complete understanding of this and I land in this space. I think the sin is apostasy. And apostasy defined as an abandonment and a renunciation or a denial of your faith, of one's religious beliefs. I think that there's no other way that you can describe this sin in one word that the author of Hebrews is speaking about. Some have attempted to say that the warning in Hebrews is just to warn you about losing gifts in heaven. That all you're going to be doing is losing out on eternal reward. Let me tell you something. If I'm going to write a letter of any significance to anybody and they have the chance of losing relationship with the person or the gifts that that person can give them, I'm not going to be writing a letter as strong as this to say, hey, get back together with that person because you might lose rewards. I'm going to be like, you're losing the person. Sort your life out. You're letting go of this person. To heck with the rewards. I will get into heaven as a street sweeper as long as I've got Jesus. He's the great reward. He's the ultimate one. So much we make so much stuff about the rewards we're going to get in heaven. Praise God that He's gracious enough to give us reward, but He is our great reward. He's our great high priest. To stand in the presence of Jesus, I think about John on the island of Patmos. I fell at the feet of Jesus as though dead. Here's the disciple who Jesus loved, who fell asleep on the chest of Jesus, who heard the heartbeat of the Son of God in his ear as he took a nap under a tree. And then when he sees Jesus in his glory, he falls at his feet as though dead. Jesus is our great reward. I don't think Hebrews is warning us about losing reward one day in heaven. Think quickly with me about chapter 10, 29. These people insult. It says they insult Christ. In other words, they know what they're doing. They don't have to wonder about whether they're committing this sin. This is something people know they're doing. It's deliberate deliberate and conscious. It's a proud rejection of Christ. And now finally, the one that most people disagree on. Well, this is where most disagreement exists. Who is the audience? Who does the author of Hebrews think he's writing to? Just about everything hangs on the audience when it comes to understanding the warning passages. Who are they? Are they believers or are they not? That's the question, right? But we haven't got there yet. We don't know that. Let's not assume that they are, right? If the audience is comprised of believers and believers can forfeit redemption by their own choosing, then it means that God in His sovereignty has made it possible for us to choose and to unchoose Him. And because He is sovereign, He is able to do that. He's able to grant humans the freedom to both choose Him and then to deny Him, both to accept Him and then to reject Him. Now again, as we examine these, do the same thing. Go home, read the references, have a look and be honest with yourself. Who is the author speaking to? What is his assumption about the receivers 
of this letter. But the consequences will be massive for some people. Right? There are plenty of terms to consider. We're only going to look at some of them for time's sake. But first of all, the author, and this is important, includes himself in the letter by using we. He says this, we must pay most careful attention to what we have heard so that we don't drift away. How shall we escape so great a salvation? We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold fast to our original conviction. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we, if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? Now, why is this significant? Well, because it's seriously disingenuous to include yourself in the warnings if you don't think that it genuinely applies to you. Right? Or if you don't think that you're part of the group you're writing to. If I... If I had to write to the Springboks and go, hey guys, today we are going to play well, or we should play well. Right? There's an understanding of, like I'm speaking about South Africa, we should play well. But I am a South African, and so are they. But it's even more disingenuous if I use the word we, and I think I am actually part of the team. Today, we had better tackle well. The we suggests, yes, I'm a South African, and so are they. They're my team. They're my teammates, because we're part of, you know, Mzanzi. But then there's also the sense in which I might be thinking that I'm part of the team, which is disingenuous. I think the author is including himself. He understands that he's part of who they are, that he is one of them. So that's why he uses the word we. Secondly, if he does not have the moral authority to call them to what he's calling them to, he can't say we must, we must, we must. If he doesn't have the moral authority to do that, why does he call them to it? Why does he do that? And thirdly, if he doesn't believe it's possible to commit the sin, why is he even writing about it? Why does he include himself in the warning if he doesn't believe it's possible for himself to do this? By using we, the author assumes he believes he's speaking to genuine Christians. That's where I land. At least it Im- he implicates himself in the potential for apostasy by using we. Next, the author, and this is a big one, he uses the word brothers and sisters. Right? This is a very serious word for first century Christians. For a Christian theologian, teacher, or pastor to call someone brother or sister is to be connected to them in the most deepest way. And in the case of the author of Hebrews, his language is even more serious because he has what he says, holy brothers and sisters. He says, holy brothers and sisters. He says, we have the following, and, 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 and then we have this following thread Right, which helps us to understand what he means by brothers and sisters. In, verse, in chapter 2, verse 11 to 17. So Jesus, he says, is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. I will sing your praises. Those brothers and sisters are Christian brothers and sisters. When the author of Hebrews writes to his brothers and sisters, he writes to his holy brothers and sisters. And by implication, he means that they're safe. In other words, the audience believes that his brothers and sisters in Christ are the ones he's writing to. And they're brothers and sisters in the faith of Jesus, in the gospel. And he warns them, don't apostatize. Don't walk away. Also, the author calls his audience believers. 
right? Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest. We who have believed past tense. We have believed. Also, and this is a trump card when it comes to audience. For me, this is, if you just had the one, this just one, it would be enough for me. Right? It's a potent comment. Verse 10, 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by those who have spurned the Son of God, profaned the blood of the covenant by which they were sanctified and outraged the Spirit of grace? I've got to land in the space that he's speaking to Christians. How is it possible that someone was sanctified by the blood and not be a Christian? That's what you've got to get around if you don't believe he's speaking to Christians. It sounds to me like the author knows who he's speaking to and that they are Christians. Lastly, concerning audience. 6.10, they're those who have shown love in the name of Christ. They've had their hearts sprinkled and been cleansed of a guilty conscience. They've seen evidence, or there's been seen evidence in them of enduring persecutions. And along with these and other confirmations, I feel that he's speaking to Christians. So we've got a sin, which is apostasy, which results in eternal damnation. The encouragement is not to fall away, and he's writing to Christians. Right? Let me end with a few of the phrases that we got from the warning passage in chapter 6 and just help us understand some of those things quickly because I think it lends into this and you can see how it now all ties in and how this warning passage shouldn't be isolated as the one that speaks about losing salvation. They all do. This one just says it in a different way. It is impossible for those who have been enlightened. The word enlightened was an early Christian term for the conversion of the mind. Right? And this is how it's used Right? In, 10 to, in, in 1032, where the author calls him to remember those early days after you received the light. After you received the light, after your mind was enlightened, after you were renewed by the transforming of your mind. After you were enlightened. Tasted, it says, who have tasted the heavenly gift. Tasted is used to describe experienced. Not just for those who have tasted and not fully indulged. Or not eaten. And that's confirmed in 2.9, where it is said that Jesus tasted death. Jesus didn't just have a little bit of death. He fully died. Jesus tasted death. He experienced death. And so this isn't talking about just having tasted the heavenly. No, you fully experienced the heavenly gift. Who have shared in the Holy Spirit. Who have partaken. Sharing in the Holy Spirit refers to that charismatic transformation that happens in you when you're reborn spiritually. So who's the audience? The author, the author seems to think that they're mixed, but not mixed in the sense that it's fake Christians versus real Christians. It's Christians who will persevere and Christians who will not. That's who he's writing to. Right? There's no suggestion in the book of Hebrews that some suggest that he's speaking to frauds, that he's convinced that there's frauds, and so he's pretending that he doesn't know that they're frauds and writing to everybody as if they're genuine. There's no mix here in his mind between genuine and fraudulent Christians. 
he's writing to what he believes to be a group of genuine Christians. And he says, some of you have fallen away. Some of you are being tempted and will fall away. And some of you won't. Guys, don't. Don't do that. Hold on to Jesus. Right? I would say a better term to be used is, like I said in the beginning, a denial of Jesus. We're called to persevere. Now, this doesn't mean, and I promise you I'm going to end with this, right? You've been gracious to me. I've got one minute left. Being called to persevere doesn't mean salvation is dependent upon us. God alone saves. We don't make a way. God has made the way, and He's made that by His grace, love, and mercy. We don't deserve what God has done for us, nor would we ever be able to, nor should we try and deserve what God has done for us. God saves simply because He's gracious, loving, and kind. God has done it. But God has also made us in His own image. And a crucial part of who God is, is the ability to choose and to know the difference between good and evil and have the decision to make the choice so that genuine love is evidenced. That's one of the apologetic arguments we have for people who ask, how can there be a God because there's so much evil? Our response is, the principle we apply is, because there's evil, there must be good. And the ability to choose between good and evil means you're free. And if you choose good when you could have chosen evil, it evidences genuine love. Right? If my wife had a gun to the back of her head that I don't know about, and she was told to recite her vows and told to marry me behind the scenes, and then I found out, I would question her love for me. Although I'm a great guy, right? <laughs> I would question her love and I would doubt it. See, genuine love is evidence when there is a free will to choose between her. Do I want to go there or don't I want to go there? It's why God made the possibility of evil in the garden for Adam and Eve. They were sinless. He put the tree there. Why? So that they could evidence genuine love by choosing obedience. Okay? You need to understand that. We are made in the image of God to choose and it would be impossible for these people to be brought back to repentance, not in the sense that God is unable and God is unwilling. It's because your heart is so hard at this point that you wouldn't want to come back. And so the argument that I've had thrown my way is this, this leaves you scared and fearful. How do I know when you've lost? What happens if I sin here or sin there or sin here and I wake up and I'm not saved? No, the fact that you're even worried about it means it's not you. Right? This is a deliberate, conscious decision to go, I know what I'm doing, and I say no to Jesus after having experienced everything. And at that point, you've experienced everything you possibly can do because you've partaken in the Holy Spirit, you've had your mind enlightened, you've tasted of the Holy Gift, you've been part of the Holy, Holy Community, you've experienced all the goodness of God, you've had your conscience cleared, you've been cleansed with the blood, you've met in the intimate place with Jesus, and yet still you say no. It's like where it says there's no more sacrifice left for sin. It's not because Jesus isn't good enough. It's because the one and only thing that can cleanse you from your sin, you've said no to. There's nothing left. And in that sense, if you've rejected God after all of this, it's impossible for you to come back because your heart is so hard. The impossibility lies on your part, not God's. Right? That's how I understand that. And so here's the conclusion. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is our great high priest. Run hard after him and let there be a sharp breath of fresh air in us going, he is awesome and wonderful, majestic and beyond compare. Let me not treat with contempt the salvation I have. 
Let me persevere. Let me love Jesus. Let me be obedient to him and not sit on my laurels and remain immature. Let me honor the price Jesus has paid for me. Right? Let's pray. Oh, thank you, God. Oh. Now, Father, I just want to thank you so much for your word. I want to thank you for your love and your grace and your kindness. And I pray, Jesus, by the Spirit, that you would strengthen us, God. Thank you, Lord, that your love is great, that the Spirit's power in us gives us everything we need for life and godliness. You enable us. And, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here that we would walk hard after you, that we would walk in the kingdom with our heads held high, knowing that you're our Father, our King, our High Priest, and that because of you, we have salvation. Let us not treat it with contempt. Let us honor you. Let us love you and walk this race with perseverance in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Bless you and have a wonderful weekend. Pray for the springbok.